Chapter Nine of the Last Egyptian. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ian Stewart, Rosanna, Victoria, Australia. The Last Egyptian by L. Frank Baum. Chapter Nine. Chapter Nine. Aneth. Charles Consinor, ninth Earl of Roane, was considerably discouraged at the moment when Luke the butler placed the big blue government envelope upon his table, thoughtfully leaving it at the top of the daily heap of missives from impatient creditors. During a gay and dissipated life, his lordship had seen the ample fortune left him by his father gradually melt away, until now, in his old age, he found it difficult to secure sufficient funds to enable him to maintain a respectable position in the world. He had been ably assisted in his extravagances by his only son, the Viscount Roger Consinor, who for twenty years past had performed his full share in dissipating the family fortunes. Apart from their mutual prodigality, however, the two men had little in common. The father was reckless, open-handed, and careless of consequences, indulging himself frankly in such dissipations as most men are careful to hide. The son was reserved and sullen, and posed as a man eminently respectable, confining his irregularities mainly to the gaming table. Between them they had loaded the estates with mortgages, and sold every stick and stone that could be sold. At last the inevitable happened, and they faced absolute ruin. There seemed no way out of their difficulties. The Viscount had unfortunately married a wife with no resources whatever although her family connections were irreproachable. The poor Viscountess had been a confirmed invalid ever since her baby girl was born, some eighteen years before, and was merely tolerated in the big half-ruined London mansion, being neglected alike by her husband and her father-in-law, who had both come to look upon her as a useless encumbrance. More than that, they resented the presence of a young, awkward girl in the house, and for that reason banished Aneth at twelve to a girls' school in Cheshire, where she remained practically forgotten until her eighteenth year. Then the lady preceptress shipped her home because her tuition fee was not promptly paid. Aneth found her mother so confirmed in the selfish habits of the persistent invalid that the girls' society, fresh and cheery though it proved, only irritated her nerves. She found her father, the morose Viscount, absolutely indifferent and unresponsive to her desire to be loved and admitted into his companionship. But old Lord Roane, her grandfather, had still a weakness for a pretty face, and Aneth was certainly pretty. Moreover, she was sweet and pure and maidenly, and no one was better able to admire and appreciate such qualities than the worn-out Rue, whose life had been mainly spent in the society of light women. So he took the girl to his evil old heart, and loved her, and tried to prevent her discovering how unworthy he was of her affection. The love for his granddaughter became the one unselfish, honest love of his life, and it assisted wonderfully in restoring in him some portion of his long-lost self-respect. Aneth, finding no other friend in the gloomy establishment that was now her home, soon became devoted, in turn, to her grandsire, and though she was shrewd enough, in spite of her inexperience, to realise that his life had been, and still was, somewhat coarse and dissipated, she fondly imagined that her influence would, to an extent, reclaim him, which it actually did, but only to an extent. There was little concealment in the family circle as to the state of their finances. 
father and son quarrelled openly about the division of what little money could be raised on the overburdened estates and the girl was not long in realising the difficulties of their position if the viscount had nothing to gamble with he became insufferable and almost brutal in his manner if lord roane could not afford to dine at the club and amuse himself afterward he was irritable and abusive to all with whom he came in contact save only his granddaughter the household expenses were matters of credit and the wages of the servants were greatly in arrears and so when the affairs of the family had become well-nigh desperate the big blue envelope with the government stamp arrived and like magic all their difficulties dissolved a newly appointed cabinet minister a man whom lord roane had reason to consider an enemy rather than a friend had for some surprising and unknown reason interested himself in roane's behalf and the result was a diplomatic post for him in egypt under lord cromer and a position for the viscount in the egyptian department of finance the appointments were lucrative and honourable and indicated the government's perfect confidence in both father and son lord roane was astounded never would he have dared demand such consideration and to have these honours thrust upon him at a time when they would practically rescue his name and fortune from ruin was almost unbelievable he accepted the appointment with alacrity joyful at the prospect of a winter in gay cairo roger shared his father's felicity because the gaming in the oriental city would be more fascinating than that of london where people had begun to frown when he entered a room the invalid viscountess hoped egypt would benefit her health aneth welcomed any change from the horrible condition in which they had existed latterly grandfather said she gravely our gracious queen has given to you and to my father positions of great trust i am sure that you will personally do your duty loyally and with credit to our honoured name but i am afraid for father will you promise me to keep him from card-playing and urge him to lead a more reputable life foo nonsense child roger will behave himself i am sure now that he will have important duties to occupy him the minister of finance will keep him busy never fear and he will have neither time nor inclination for folly don't worry little one our fortunes have changed we shall now be able to pay the butcher and baker and candlestick maker and there is little doubt the consinors will speedily become the pride of the nation ahem tell luke my dear to fetch my brandy and soda as you go out and stay remember we are to leave london on the fourth of october and you must have both your mother and yourself ready to depart promptly i depend upon you aneth she kissed him and went away without further comment reflecting with a sigh that her fears and warnings were alike unheeded lord roane left to himself began wondering anew to what whim of fate he owed his good fortune really there seemed no clue to the mystery it was a complicated matter even to one on the inside so it is no wonder the old nobleman failed to comprehend it many years ago the cabinet minister and lord roane had been intimate friends then the former fell madly in love with a little egyptian princess who was the rage of the london season and sought her hand in marriage roane also became enamoured of the beautiful hatatcha and went so far as to apply for a divorce from his wife that he might wed her the fascinating egyptian guileless of european customs and won by the masterful ardour of roane chose him from among all her suitors and casting aside the honest love of roane's friend fell unconsciously into the trap set for her and became the mistress of the man who promised her such rare devotion presently however 
the heartless Rue tired of his easy conquest, and carelessly thrust her aside, although the divorce for which he had applied on false representations had now been granted, and he was free to marry his victim, had he so wished. All London was indignant at his act at the time, and no one was more enraged than Roan's former friend. He searched everywhere for the Egyptian princess when Hatatcha fled from London to hide her shame, and on his return from the unsuccessful quest he quarrelled with Roan and would have killed him, had not mutual friends interposed. Time had, of course, seared all these old wounds, although the hatred between the two men would endure to the grave. The betrayer was careless of criticism and wealthy enough to defy it, the man who had truly loved was broken-hearted, and from that time avoided all society and especially that of women, but he plunged into politics for diversion, and in that field won for himself such honour and renown in future years that at last he became a member of Her Majesty's Cabinet, second in power only to the Premier himself. Thus Prince Kara found him. The Egyptian had only to use the magic name of Hatatcha to secure a private audience with the great man, who listened quietly, while Kara demanded vengeance upon his grandmother's betrayer. In England, said the minister, there is no vendetta. The rage I fostered thirty-odd years ago, when my heart was wrung with despair, has long since worn itself out. Time evens up these old scores without human interference. Rome is today on the verge of ruin. His only son is a confirmed gambler. Their race is nearly run, and the grey hairs of Hatatcha's false lover will go dishonoured to the grave. Is that not enough? By no means, returned Prince Kara with composure. I must be made to suffer as my grandmother suffered, but with added agony for the years of impunity that have elapsed. It was her will, the desire of her long miserable life, Will you, her old friend, deny her right to be avenged? A flood of resentment swept into the heart of the listener. Years may sear a wound, but if it is deep, the scar remains. What do you ask of me? he answered. Before replying, Kara reflected for some time, his eyes steadily fixed upon the floor. Are there no women in Lord Roan's family? he asked finally. There are two, I believe, his son's wife, who was an invalid, and his granddaughter. Ah! The long-drawn exclamation was one of triumphant satisfaction. Again the Egyptian relapsed into thought, and the minister was growing impatient when his strange visitor at last spoke. Sir, said he, you ask me what you can do to assist me. I will tell you. Obtain for Lord Roan a diplomatic post in Cairo under Lord Cromer. Obtain some honourable place for his son as well. That will take the entire family to Egypt, my own country. Well? In London there is no vendetta. Crimes that the law cannot reach are allowed to go unpunished. In Egypt we are nature's children. No false civilization glosses our wrongs or denies our right to protect our honour. I implore you, my lord, as you respect the memory of poor Hatatcha, to send Lord Roan and his family to Egypt. I will, said the minister, with stern brow. And so it was that the government remembered old Lord Roane, and likewise his illustrious son, the Viscount Roger Consinor, and sent them to Egypt on missions of trust. End of chapter 9 Recording by Ian Stewart, Rosanna, Victoria, Australia